The topic tonight is eternal security and whether or not Christians can lose their salvation. The crowd is low tonight, so I take that as a sign as maybe we're, we're really confident in this area, <laughs> which I guess is encouraging um, in a strange sort of way. Um, so, uh, uh, but we'll get into it. So if you didn't get a handout, I want you to get one in the back there. Um, and just in case I forget, um, next Wednesday will be our last um, midweek fellowship for this block. And the topic that we're going to engage next week is going to be uh, the Christian and depression. Uh, and so, you know, how do Christians battle depression? Is it legitimate for Christians to uh, ever take medication for depression and mood disorders and, and uh, kind of controlling, you know, type of mental um, issues like that? And we're going to really try and peel that back, hopefully encourage people and uh, remove some stigma that I think is often associated with that. So I don't have a book to give away today. I completely forgot to order some of these books, but um, I'm going to let you know about this book that um, I'm going to reference, and in, in, I used it as a reference for our, our handout. And, uh, and then I also use Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which we refer to often here as an excellent resource. But this book is called How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian?, what the Bible Says About Assurance of Salvation, written by a man named Donald Whitney, very respected uh, professor, author, very, very helpful. And um, so if you want to just take a look at this book and write down the title of it and uh, maybe order it for yourself on Amazon, it's probably less than $10, really, really helpful resource. All right, well, let me get into it and pray, and we will uh, start digging into it. Well, Lord, we pray uh, that you would help us tonight. As always, we need your help. We, uh, as we read these scriptures and as we think about um, an issue that regrettably at times just becomes kind of fodder for theological debate or it becomes uh, just an issue where people, you know, identify themselves in a camp and, and it almost takes on a sort of impersonal clinical tone. I pray that you'd guard our hearts from that. I pray that you would guard our hearts from any spiritual pride or discouragement. Uh, but you would help us strike the right tone tonight. That you'd help me, in particular, strike the right tone as I'm, as I'm teaching, and as I'm thinking through these scriptures and presenting them. I pray that you'd help uh, my friends here uh, understand. I pray for clarity, for uh, a certain sober-mindedness. And I pray for encouragement, encouragement and confidence to rise up in us about the greatness of our salvation. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that is not yet trusting in Christ, even on a Wednesday night in a midweek fellowship, I pray, God, that you, by your kind grace, by your sovereign mercy, that you might give eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe in the beauty of Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And that you would make that person alive, even tonight. Help us now as we, as we dig into these scriptures and, and these, and these uh, questions. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, <clears throat> I got the question written up there on top. Can a Christian lose their salvation? And I'm just going to go ahead and just sort of put my cards on the table right there on the top of the outline. Um, no. 
I don't think that a true Christian, somebody who's truly been born again, can lose their salvation. But I do think that the idea uh, that, that surround ideas and phrases that surround this concept can be very, very unhelpful. And I think that many people in our culture uh, probably uh, deal with a sort of false sense of assurance. I think we live in a very watered-down sort of cultural Christianity area where phrases like once saved, always saved, or tossed around, like meaning that if you just raise your hand at the you know, Thursday night youth camp uh, culmination service that you, know, you got your fire insurance and you're okay. That is not what we are talking about or what the Bible is talking about when it talks about eternal security or the perseverance of the saints or, or assurance of salvation. And so there's a lot more that we need to say about just a simple no to can a true Christian lose their salvation. And tonight you may hear me refer to the idea of being truly born again or a true Christian. And that's because we live in the land, in the country of nominal Christianity. And so I think there's a distinction between people who say that they're Christians and may even think that they're Christians or assume that they're Christians and people who truly are born again and converted. And so we're going to unpack that. Well, Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, which we refer to a bunch, chapter 40, his uh, chapter on the perseverance of the saints, says this as by way of definition. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere, that means to remain, to continue until the end, as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. And then the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a historical Protestant document written back in the late 1500s, early early 1600s, uh, it's the confessional statement of, of most Presbyterians and most Reformed Christians. I think that it's a wonderful, wonderful document, wonderful statement of faith. I don't agree with all of it. Uh, there's a few things about baptism that we would disagree with here, but a good bit of this document is excellent. And this is what that uh, historic confession, Protestant confession of faith says about um, eternal security or the perseverance of Christians. It says, They... Whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. One reason I really like that definition is it is it woven into there is this acknowledgement that they people will struggle at times in life. It says there we can neither totally nor finally fall away, meaning you know, we will have periods of kind of ebbing and flowing in our sanctification, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But we didn't come here to quote Grudem and some old English dudes um, in, uh, in, you know, the British Isles. We came here to look at the Bible. So what does the Bible say? Well, let's look at the golden chain of salvation. Let's just let this sort of whet our appetite and orient us. We're going to read a good bit of Scripture tonight, um, and there's many more Scriptures that we could read. Uh, but we would spend all of our time reading Scripture, and we want to give some time for explanation and, um, and some implications. So the golden chain of salvation is what this verse in Romans 8 is often uh, referred to. And this is Paul's words here in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Many of us, I'm sure, have maybe even memorized Romans 8, 28, but there's some really significant things after it. So he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. So he's speaking specifically there of, of Christians, not just everybody. He's speaking of Christians. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and here's this golden chain. It's not saying everything that happens in salvation, but it is giving a sort of picture of all, uh, on, on a large view of what's going on in salvation. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the, the words again, just the key words, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Notice that those are all in the past tense, and those refer to, to Christians. And you may say, well, he's talking about some people that were alive back at the time. That's why it's in the past tense. But notice what he says about the future state of even present Christians reading this right as Paul was writing it in their time, that they are already glorified. And so this has been called historically uh, the golden chain of salvation that, that, that in one sense salvation happens to us in time, but in another sense it is outside of time and we are already justified and glorified and our salvation from God's perspective is complete and final and sealed. So then let's kind of break down and fill in the blanks a little bit about now, what, what theologians through the centuries have called the order of salvation, or in Latin, ordo salutis, if you ever hear that phrase. That's just uh, referring to the order of salvation. And these are the ten, uh, ten steps that are really embedded in becoming a Christian. The first is predestination election. That's God's choice of people to be saved. We're not going to spend too much time talking about that tonight. We've talked uh, about that a lot here at Crosspoint. We've preached sermons on it, done secondary teachings on it. If you want to go deeper into that, um, I can point you to some resources and to the sermons that we've preached. Basically, all Christians believe in predestination and election. Right? It's in the Bible. In fact, we just read from... Um, Romans 8.29, where it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So the word predestined is not made up by a particular group of Christians. And, and you know, other Christians don't. Everybody believes in predestination. The debate or the difference between Christians is upon what basis does God predestine. Everybody can agree, because it's in the Bible, that God predestines, but the, 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 again, the controversy is upon what basis. Some Christians think that God predestines or chooses, to use a, a more simpler term, chooses Christians based on their choice of him. So he looks down, even through the portals of time, through eternity, he looks, he, he sees who will choose him, and he chooses people based on their prior faith in him. The other side of the argument, and I think this is the biblical side, and this is what we, uh, this is what I believe. You don't have to believe this at all. This is an open-handed issue here, but I think this is clearly what the Bible states. I think it's more certainly humbling, but that God, when he predestines, he chooses people before time because of nothing good in them, because just of his own sovereign pleasure and mercy. But regardless of what you believe about that, 
you can certainly affirm that the first thing that happens in uh, our salvation, in the order of our salvation, is this before time election or predestining um, choice of God based on whatever, whatever you may think. I think clearly, biblically, um, it's based on God's complete mercy, not because of anything good in us. Um, and there's, there's lots more we can say about that, and we've said a lot about that in the past, so I don't want to belabor that point. After that, then the gospel call, uh, the proclaiming of the message of the gospel. That doesn't necessarily mean in a preached message. It could be you know, just in sharing, reading the, the good news about what Jesus has done. A person has to actually hear the gospel. That's why those words that are often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, although I think uh, uh, express a, a nice and warm sentiment. You know that, that phrase that... Um, um, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Has anybody ever heard that um, phrase? I think it's, I mean, I, I don't want to beat up on it too much. I think it's expressing, uh, I think, an admirable sort of sentiment, but I, I just think it's not, I, I just think that's the best way to, 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 um, to say it. I don't think it's particularly biblical. Um, that would be like saying, uh, call me, but don't use my telephone number. <laughs> you know, you can't, you like, you have to actually communicate the words. And so the, the, the gospel has to be preached and heard. That's the logic of Paul in Romans chapter 10. How will they he- believe unless they hear? So the gospel is proclaimed, it's called, it's taught, it's preached, it's shared, it's read, it's communicated. The news of the gospel is communicated. And then regeneration, it hits the human heart and it, it brings life. A person is born again, and then they are converted. They place their faith in Christ, and they turn away from their sin. It's simultaneously happening. It, to, to have faith, true saving faith, is to have repentance. So to be going to Atlanta is to simultaneously be leaving Columbus. To place saving faith in Jesus is to simultaneously be leaving behind, trusting in your own sin or or self-righteousness. So conversion is faith and repentance. Then at that moment, justification happens. You are a person, when they um, place their faith in Christ, they are justified. They are in now right standing with God. Their guilt has been removed. Not only are they justified, they are now, the Bible says, adopted into God's family. So it's not just a, a sort of academic, theological Um, application of status, but God doesn't just justify us. He adopts us into his family as one of his children. And then begins the process of the rest of the life of a Christian here on this earth, which is sanctification, growing in ever-increasing measure, sometimes one steps forward, two steps back, but a process of growing into the image of Christ and then uh, the, the, the next number eight there is perseverance. That is what we're concerned with today is that this idea that a person will remain a Christian if they are truly born again until they, until they die. And then step nine, which is death. So our, our mortal bodies um, die and go into the ground. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so immediately upon our death, our soul um, is with the Lord. Our body is in the ground, and we are in heaven, but, but we are in this sort of intermediate state. We're not floating around in sort of limbo with a harp and a robe. We are with the Lord, but the final glorified state of Christians does not become fully consummated until Jesus comes back and finally and fully defeats evil, 
vanquishes and extinguishes it forever and then glorifies his people. And at that point of glorification, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our bodies will be resurrected and we will have physical, uh, real, perfect, resurrected bodies. Now that's a meditation for you. I mean, think about whatever hurts on you right now or whatever you're not happy with right now will fade away and you will have a real, physical, glorified body in the flesh that will be reunited with your perfected soul and we will live forever and ever, not as angels in clouds playing the harp floating around with wings, but we will be real people, like a resurrected, like Jesus in his resurrected state. We will have, it will not be like the flesh that we have now. It won't hurt, it won't ache, it will be beautiful and it will be glorified, and there will be no pain forever and ever and ever. Friends, just, just to, this would be a wonderful meditation for you just to think about these, these ten steps in salvation. Now, 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 when I say steps, don't think of them as, okay, I passed through, you know, predestination, now the gospel call, now I have to be regenerated. Now, when is conversion going to come? Okay, conversion, and then justification, and how long is it going to take before I'm adopted? No. The... Steps three through six happen instantaneously, all together, right? So, so it happens, boom, like you hear the God, like Lazarus, you know, like when, when Jesus spoke to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth, the, the sovereign, effective grace of God hits a dead heart, as Ephesians 2 says, makes it alive, Right? Lazarus doesn't like decide in his dead state, okay, I'm going to cooperate now with the good suggestion of Jesus. No, Lazarus is dead, and Jesus brings him back to life. And then Lazarus starts to do what? Breathe. And so the first breath for a Christian spiritually is instantaneously faith and repentance and trusting in Christ. And then in that moment, instantaneously, they're justified and adopted, and then they begin this process of sanctification. Right, and so don't think of it as kind of like some, you know, labyrinth that you have to go through, or you know, first base, second base, third base, or you got to hit a bunch of singles, and maybe you'll get batted in when you're on third base in the bottom of the ninth inning. No, this happens. Steps three through six um, happens um, instantaneously at that moment. And so uh, I think a good way to summarize. Let me just give you three sort of stages in uh, of time of salvation. Is that Uh, Regarding salvation, God determines it before time. And again, don't don't be too tripped up by that. We've talked a lot about what the sovereign predestining grace of God is about here. There's freedom for Christians to disagree on this issue. We're clear about where we stand on this issue. If you want to go deeper into that and talk and you have questions about that, I'd be glad to answer that uh, later. But God clearly, all Christians can affirm, determines salvation before time. He accomplishes, whoa, that got crazy there for a second, didn't it? Accomplishes, Salvation in time by Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection and his defeat of sin and death and all of its consequences. 
And then, and this is dicey for me because I've always misspelled this word, he gar, whoop, there I messed it up already. He guarantees, is that right? He guarantees salvation for all time. You see that? We're in here. We're, we're in the, we're in the uh, point where we are experiencing the accomplishment of our salvation. But from these scriptures that we've read in Romans 8, and we're going to read a bunch here in a second, it's been determined before time. It's accomplished in time through Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection and the defeat of death and sin and all of its consequences. And then God guarantees our salvation for all time. So let me read some scripture passages that really hammer this point home. And friends, we could read many, many more. But these are just a, a sample of the passages in the Bible that speak to the guarantee, the preservation, the persevering, the security of true Christians. Philippians 1.6, most of you I'm sure have heard of this, know this scripture, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 31 through 39 let me start in verse 33, actually. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, Christians. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Listen to verse 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like he's just, it's like Paul is just, you know, he's having this brainstorm of all these things. What could possibly separate us from the love of God? In other words, what could what could cause us to lose our standing with God? And he just runs out of things to think about. And he says, nothing in all creation. Guess what's included in all creation? You and me and even our sin and difficult struggles. So nothing. So that's Romans 8. First Peter, I uh, love this verse. We spent a couple months going through First Peter a few months ago. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, notice the, the, notice the one doing the verb here. Notice, notice the agent and the verb. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance, meaning salvation, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't that encouraging? So it's like God is guarding our salvation in heaven, but he's even involving us in the process. He is giving us the gift of faith and using the means of our willing obedience to be the means by which God guards us in our salvation. First Peter 1, Hebrews 10, verse 14. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. It explains so much. It explains why I am right with God, but yet I'm still jacked up. It explains why um, I can still be a Christian, 
and get really, really mad at, you know, my children when I want them to get ready in the morning for school without dragging tail and fighting. And it explains, uh, it, it just, it's, it's a tremendous encouragement to me. Hebrews 10, 14, 4, by a single offering, meaning Jesus' work on the cross, he has perfected for all time. Remember, outside of time, it's accomplished already. Your salvation is not, it's, it's accomplished, it's set, he's, it's past tense. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, my mother was an English teacher. She corrected my grammar all day long, every day long. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, I would say, Todd and me are going to play catch. No, Todd and I. Todd's my older brother. Todd and I are going to play catch. It's correct. I spent my childhood being corrected. So I am sensitive (laughs) to tenses and grammatical constructions that don't make sense. And this grammatical construction, if you turned it into my mother would come back with some red on it. Unless you're the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it, he's mixing tenses here. For he has perfected, past tense, all time, those who are being sanctified. Doesn't that explain a whole bunch about why Christians still muddle through this life? Yeah, it does to me. I think that's incredibly encouraging. Okay, and then Jesus. Let's, listen to, uh, let's read some really important words from Jesus about what he has to say about uh, the persevering, the preservation of Christians. John chapter 6, verse 37. Super important passages in John 6 and 10. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, notice the clear, definitive, particular language of Jesus here. Jesus is exterminating the possibility that anybody that the Father has given him will not finally and fully endure to the end. Jesus has not failed, cannot fail. And then John chapter 10, he says... Some similar things. John chapter 10. Go over a couple chapters. John 10 verses 14 through 18. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then go to verse 27 of John chapter 10. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. And some people have objected to this and said, well, okay, well, nobody else can snatch you from Jesus' hand, but you, know, you can make your own decision to walk away from God. Well, I think you are included in that no one, right? So I think the individual is included in that clearly, and we've, I think the implication is that in, in the other verses that we've read as well. Friends, why is reading these verses so important? Because I suspect, maybe not all of you, but I suspect that the vast majority of you that have been hanging around at Crosspoint for a while understand and would have the same conviction that, that, that I would and the leadership of this church would have on this issue. That's maybe why, you know, a few less people, yeah, I know this, I know this. But here's the problem, I think, and here's the reason why it's important to actually know where the scriptures are. Because I think too many Christians have convictions about this particular area of doctrine based on just, just kind of culture of the church that they grew up in. So you grew up in maybe a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church, and you think, oh, well, a Christian can't lose their salvation. Of course not, and you just sort of move on. But you don't really, you can't find it in Scripture, and it's good to know to base our convictions not on denominational stances or culture or whatever, but on the actual Bible. And so there's, we could go on and read these other verses we won't take time to do, but the Bible is clear about the perseverance, and I think it's better to say the preservation of Christians, because notice all the acting in most of these verbs is Jesus keeping us, it's God guarding us. And so I think a better, more helpful term for me to think about it is it's not me holding on to God. It's God holding on to me is what's happening really. So I think preservation of Christians is actually a a more helpful word picture for me. But having said that, let's think about some issues related to this. Letter D there. It is true also that some who are not truly born again may give external signs of conversion. We see clear examples of this in the scriptures. And this is where it gets a little head-scratching, kind of confusing at times as we, as we look at the world around us and even, you know, the church and, and Christians and culture. We see this in John chapter 6, back to where we just were. We see Jesus referring to the example of Judas. And he is before, long before Judas has betrayed him, in John chapter 6, after he's preached this really hard sermon about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and following him. And what Jesus is meaning there is not that we literally become cannibals, obviously, but he's talking about really believing and owning and, and sinking our hearts and minds into what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he says in verse 63 and 64 there, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, speaking to his disciples at this point. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So Judas is one of the... He's referring to Judas in this instance. Judas is, of course, one of the 12 disciples who ultimately falls away, and Jesus is clearly saying there that, Jesus, that Judas didn't have his salvation and lose it. He never truly was a born-again believer. He never truly believed in Jesus. We see, I think, a clear implication of this, just clear as a bell in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, which I think should not really be called the parable of the sower, because it's not about the sower, it's really more about the soil. So let's go to Mark chapter 4. I'm sure you've heard the story about the sower is throwing out some seed, and the seed falls on different types of, of ground. And the seed is representing the gospel, the message of what Jesus, um, his word, what he's, what he's done. And in verse 13 of Mark chapter 4, Jesus now explains the parable. 
He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? For the sower sows the word, and those are the ones along the path where the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But then, in verse 20, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Okay, so notice there's four types of soil. There's one that's just snatched away immediately. No, you know, just kind of outright rejection of the word. It's gone. No, no, no evidence of maybe being a Christian. But notice the second and third soils. He says that the, there, there is this soil that hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, but it has no root. It endures for a while. But when tribulation and persecution come, it falls away. And then there's others that hear the word, but then the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, come in and choke it out. Friends, soil types two and three, that word picture can play out, not over just like an hour, but over years in a person's life. And, and, and I think what, what the clear implication here is, is that the only type of soil that represents a true Christian is the fourth type of soil, the good soil, that bears fruit and endures to the end. So clearly, um, there will be people that have, for a period of time, maybe even for long extended periods of time, give some evidence of salvation, but ultimately prove themselves to not be good soil. Then we see Jesus uh, speaking about the last judgment, Matthew 7. I won't take the time to read it, but I'm sure you're familiar with it, where he says that many people on that day will come to me and say, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And he'll do all these great works. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Not that I once knew you, and you really had a you know, bad couple weeks, and so you lost it. Now I don't know you. I never knew you. And then John's warning, a very important scripture when we're thinking about this, uh, this issue in 1 John chapter 2, where John is warning the church about the Antichrist. And when he's talking about the Antichrist in this instance, he's not talking about the Antichrist, capital A, this one figure in, in times. He's talking about all people who are against Christ, who are rejecting Christ, who are not trusting in Christ. And in first 2, verse 18, he says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. In other words, people that reject Jesus. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, very important verse. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are all not of us. So what's the implication here? John is saying that there's people that are going to be with us for a while and they're going to leave us and they're not going to truly be Christians. If they would have truly been Christians, they would have stayed with us. So some who are not truly born again may give external signs of conversion. And here's the issue, friends. 
I, I think that there are people that are often given false senses of assurance. That's why the watered-down self-help gospel that is often preached in America and is on best-selling book lists is so dangerous. Because there, I, I, I think that there are some wolves out there that are certainly you know, knowing themselves not to be Christians that are coming in to deceive people. But I think there's a vast, uh, there's a huge number of people that are given a false assurance, given a watered-down gospel by false prophets and false teachers. And, and, and do you see how dastardly that is, is that they're not truly trusting in Christ. They're just sort of adding some sort of exterior American therapeutic gospel, which is a false gospel, and not truly dealing with their sins and not truly repenting of, of their sins and turning to Christ. And they are left in their, their unbelief. Let me stop there and, and, um, and answer any questions that anybody might have. This might be a good little stopping point. Anybody got any questions? Wes is going to run a microphone to you so we can record it. Anybody at all? Yeah, Darren, right down here in front. Right, raise your hand. What do you think about uh, the eternal sin that Jesus talks about? The unpardonable sin, yeah, the un- yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's in Matthew chapter twelve, um, where Jesus is um, he is rebuking the Pharisees for calling his works um, uh, uh, the works of the devil. Um, where is it in Matthew chapter twelve? I think somewhere. Um, Okay, um, blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 12, uh, 31, thank you. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy, blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. In the context of what's happening there is that um, he's, he's, he's exercised, he's, he's cast out a demon out of this person, and the religious leaders of, of the day are saying that, you know, he casts out demons by the, by the spirit of Beelzebub, or by, but just basically by the devil. And so they're calling Jesus' good, they're attributing Jesus' good work to the devil. Two different views on that. It's a great question, Darren. Is that some people think that it sort of narrowly and specifically is referring to a conscious and specific attributing of the works of God to the devil, which is which seems to be the clear context of this situation. But I think that we can make a case that there's a sort of bigger argument that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the unbelief, the willful rejection of not just the specific demon-casting-out power of Jesus, but the authority that he has over evil and sin in general. And so um, whatever... Uh, view you have, whether we're talking about attributing the very works of Jesus in the Gospels to the devil, like being sort of, you know, calling God Satan, or whether we're expanding it to mean a rejection of Christ altogether. Um, either way, uh, you know, both of those are, you know, I, I think it's probably the second, that it's a, a, a rejection of God. Um, but here's the deal, is that nobody that is wondering whether or not they've committed the unpardonable sin has done, done it. I think it's a willful rejection of Christ. 
So people that have done horrible, horrific things and even uttered, you know, uh, horrible things to God in defiance, um, I think, can clearly be forgiven. I think we see that all through the scriptures. I think this is a willful, demonic um, rejection of Christ and not something that you do in a, like a really bad spiritual time in your life. Yeah, good question. Any, anybody else? Yeah, Brian. Can a Christian knowingly deny their own belief? Can a Christian knowingly deny their own belief? Um, well, I, I think that, yeah, I think that we, I think to some degree we do, we do that all the time in a sense, but I, I don't think that they can fully and finally reject it um, to apostasy, to, be, to fall away. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Good question, but I, I mean, there's varying levels of knowledge, you know. So uh, I was listening to R.C. Sproul a couple weeks ago, and he said, I just love the way he makes things simple, and he says, if you have it, you'll never lose it. <laughs> and if you lose it, you never had it. And we could kind of write that down on a piece of paper, and that could be our talk tonight, but I, wanna, I wanted to go a little bit deeper than that. So, t- so Brian, I don't think it's possible for a Christian to completely, unsavingly reject their knowledge. You know what I'm saying? It may, may be tattered and bruised and torn and go through severe despair in times of rebellion, but it will, there will be this persevering preservation of God that happens in a person's life. Yeah, Will. Going back to two on the list here. Yeah. Uh, with uh, the gospel call and the souls and you say it can work itself out over years of a person's life, yeah. I think that that's probably troublesome for some, for, for some people in that they think that there is a, a yeah. quick switch. You hear the gospel yeah. and believe it now. Yep. And so maybe talk yeah. about that for just yeah, a second. That's a great point. Thank you, Will, for bringing that up. Let me just give a physical picture of that. I've, um, I, I have four children. I participated, I, well, let me back up. My wife's not here tonight. I was in the room for four deliveries. And let me just, and I was barely conscious for each of them. I mean, I was hanging on to the bed rail on each of them. Every labor and delivery is different. Some of them, the birthing process happens quickly. Others, it's, it's longer. The labor is extended. And the same thing for Christians. I think from, there's, I mean, I think some Christians hear the gospel hundreds of times and in God's kind providence, he just, at one particular time, he causes it to be effective, and it pushes him over the edge to believe. So, for example, I mean, I just was reflecting on it this Sunday. March 16th, 1989. was 25 years ago, this past Sunday. I think was the first time that I ever heard the gospel. Uh, it was, I, I think, kind of a man-centered version of the gospel, but it was, you're a sinner, this is what Jesus has done, you must repent. My brother, actually my, my brother's girlfriend, now my sister-in-law, he, had, he and his friends had been witnessing to me. He had been witnessing to me for about a year at this point. And he had to go back to school, and my, my sister-in-law took me to a crusade at my high school gymnasium, March 16th, 1989, and I think I heard the gospel for the first time. And I, I kind of responded to the, like I responded to the altar call in a sense. I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer. 
I continued in some pretty deep and dark and devastating sin for a good number of years after that. Somewhere along the way, I think I, I was truly converted. Where that was along that spectrum, I'm not, I'm not really sure. But at some point, I, God clearly regenerated me, and he made my heart alive, and I began to take God's side against my sin. And so, yes, for different people, that can look like a very different process. Some babies are born like that. And some babies go through the birth canal of the Holy Spirit over the course of years. Yes. Yes. And there, yes, yes. And there is, but this is why you don't hear us do things like altar calls a lot. Not that it's not a helpful thing to do. I'm not bashing that at all. But that the assurance of our faith is not based on the right words that we may say. It, the assurance of our faith is that we believe that we're trusting in Jesus. Now, can a prayer, um, a con- do, do, we, do, we, do we need to believe it? Can a prayer be helpful? Yes. But it's not like magic words that sort of seals the deal. It is God who makes us alive, and we turn away from our sin and self-trust, and we look to faith in, in, in Jesus. And there, certainly, there's, just like there's a moment in time that a person is physically born, there's a moment in time when somebody's spiritually born. But that often, from our vantage point, is obscured and very difficult to discern. Um, and it, can look, it looks different on every person. And so if you were saved at a crusade and you raised your hand and you marked that as the moment of your salvation and that's helpful for you, praise God. No, praise God. I'm not diminishing that at all. If you don't have that moment, don't, don't, be, don't be discouraged by that. Like, where are you right now trusting in Christ, taking God's side against your sin? Then, then you, you can have great assurance that you're a Christian and it looks different for every person. Every person. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up. Did I kind of answer the question for you a little bit? Yeah. Okay. All right, where were we? Um, so, any other questions about, about that before we crank through E and F here? Yeah, Chris. Yes, Pastor. I had one real quick. Um, uh, when you were talking about predestination and God's choice of people to be saved, mm-hmm. um, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, I looked up as John 5, and he said, you will not come to me that you might have yeah. life. He didn't say you can't come to me. So, I, yeah, you know, I've struggled with this, and I've talked yeah. to you about it before, but, but I forgot to ask you that time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, how do you... Um, how well, do, how I, think that I, I think this is one of the mysteries of, of election and predestination. Not mysteries, but one of the, one of the things that we need to wrestle with is that, is that um, we, the, the culpability for our rejection of God's grace is never on God. It's always on us. You will not. And at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, you, 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 I would that you would come to me, but you would not. So the culprit, until nobody, nobody can stand before God and say, you know, I was banging on the doors of heaven and you didn't choose me. No, that's not the picture. Humanity, after Genesis 3, every human being has been running away from God in rebellion, whether that's obvious rebellion that we can see or whether that's self-righteous idolatry, even in the religious form, we've all been running away from God. So this idea of predestination and election is not that there's people running away from God and he, he beats some over the head and brings them and there's people pounding on the gates of heaven saying, let me in. And he said, no, I'm sorry, I didn't choose you. And that's never the case. We will not. And so the culpability and this, yeah, this is humbling, and it's sort of hard to, from a human ph- philosophical perspective to put together. We are culpable 
Anybody that comes to Christ, though, comes to him because of his good pleasure, because what has sin done to us? It hasn't sort of neutralized us. There's nothing in us. There's nothing in us after the fall that would give us any ability to really even want him. So we're in a place of complete dependence upon God to first act on us. Now, listen, brother, I know that's a difficult thing to talk about or think about. All sorts of more things we could say about that. Um, and, and, you know, you, you can be a Christian and disagree with what I just said. You can be a Christian and still be wrestling with it and not even understand what I just said. And you can be a Christian and agree with what I just said, hopefully, because I, I agree with what I just said. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you, put your head on the, you put your finger on the nail there, that one of the humbling truths of Scripture. Brenda, Let me get the, let's get the mic. This might be confusing because it's confusing to me to even try to put into words, but um, God, he predestined you and he knew, he, he already knows what you're going to do, the decisions you're going to make, um, but just as, you know, the people that said, God, I, knew, I cast out demons and I did this, did they, did they think that they were really saved or did they, would have they known in their hearts that they weren't? Because, like, I know I'm saved, but then mm-hmm. it's like, well, what if, what if I'm not predestined? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I sometimes yeah. have a guilty, like, yeah. we were talking about just kind yeah. of having that fear of God where yeah. I love God, but sometimes what gets me to go is just having that fear of I don't want to, you know, mess around. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah. that's... That's a wonderful question, Brenda. We're going to get to it here just a little bit at the end. Let me just kind of give you a couple of thoughts so before we get to the end is that um, like I mentioned because of the water now gospel I think that there are some people that have been given false assurance that probably think they're Christians that aren't um, I think that in the case of like Matthew 7 where there's these people casting out demons thinking they're in right standing with God they kind of seem to me like that 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 sorcerer and axe that comes up to Paul and he says hey man you got the juice card I want a little bit of that like, all they're coming to God for is, like, power. And really underneath it all is they're just, wanting to, they're just wanting to make a name for themselves. They want, like, they want self to be glorified. And I think underneath all of that is really just a conscious self-worship. And people that are wondering, I heard, I heard R.C. Sproul say this two years ago when I was wrestling with these issues about, about God's, um, God's sovereignty and, and wondering about my own state before God. I've heard, I've heard other great men say, say this too. I heard uh, Mark Dever uh, recently say this in a, in a sermon that I listened to him, is that people that, that are wondering, laboring, concerned about whether or not they are saved tend to be saved. Because that in and of itself is an evidence, or at least they're in the process of being drawn to God by the Holy Spirit. People that, hearts that are dead to God, don't tend to be concerned whether or not they're alive to God. You know, that, I think that's a, that's a good thing to, uh, that's a, I think that's true. I think that's true. Yeah. We'll get a little bit more to the issue. Cindy, let's get one comment and then I want to keep, keep going. Um, my own, my own um, ideas on that are that what happens is that you want your sanctification to be completely yeah. good, perfect, yeah. over, 
And when we struggle with that and yep. we struggle with disobedience mm. and yes. sin, that's yes. why we think we may not be saved. Yes, yes. That's, that's a great point. And I would also say to Cindy to accentuate a little bit of what you said to, that might be helpful to you, Brenda, is I think a misunderstanding of salvation leads people to think that we're sort of saved by our works a little bit. Like Jesus has done 99% of it, and now I have to eff- make it effective by my 1%. And when that sort of even unintentional man-centeredness bleeds over into our salvation, well, if salvation is something that I kind of accomplish, now it's something that I have to keep up. And so kind of a, a lack of a good understanding of the, the, of the work, of the finished work of Christ is the only thing that makes us right before God. If we don't truly understand that, and I think you can not be clear on that and be a Christian, if you don't, but, but when you don't truly understand that, then what it makes you do is you feel like, oh, okay, I, I sort of did this. I made a decision. It was me, and now I got to keep it going. And so every little bump along the road tends to be turbulence that makes you doubt your salvation when, 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 when I think a better understanding of Christ's work should give you more confidence to face your sin, not to be lax in the face of your sin, but to face your sin, which then gets us to, to letter number E. I don't have time to go deeply into this. I'm going to really encourage you to read Romans 6. But so, a, a common objection of this is like, okay, well, if, if, if we uh, you know, are made Christians and we're going to endure to the end, then I can just do whatever, right? Does this encourage sin? No, read Romans 6. Paul says, let me just summarize his argument here, that, gra- that sin doesn't, it, we shouldn't sin so that grace would abound. And if I had time to read it, the argument that Paul is making is, is that if a person thinks that they can just sin like a wild man or woman because they're okay with God, they are really proving that they don't really understand what it means to be a Christian and not truly Christians, that they haven't reckon themselves dead to sin and alive to God, right? And so William Arnaud, the British theologian, which I love, a uh, British guy, I quote him a lot. I, I, I paraphrase it a lot, but here's the actual words that I refer to a lot. The difference between an unconverted and converted man is not that one, uh, between an unconverted man and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God while the other takes part with a reconciled God against his own sins. Friends, I think that's a wonderful word picture. Boy, reading that several years ago has been a tremendous help for me in my sanctification, right? So does this encourage sin? Well, when rightly understood, no, it doesn't. What I think it does is it it causes us to be fierce in the face of our sin. Do you see that? Think about that. Here's the analogy I like to have. A little kid who's up at the plate, you know, he doesn't know much about baseball. He's his first year and he's up there playing. Think about his dad who's in the stands yelling at him, saying, you better get a hit, boy. You better get a hit. You're a Johnson, or you're, you know, you're a, what, you live up to your name. You better get a hit. And the kid's up there because he thinks that his right standing with his daddy is based on his performance. And what's that kid going to do at the plate? He's going to be nervous, and he's not going to perform effectively. Contrast that. Oh, it's so beautiful. With the dad who says, son, son, listen. Listen, I don't care if you strike out a thousand times. You're my boy. You are my boy. What does that kid do when he's up at the plate? Does he drop his bat and say, well, then I'm just going to run around the bases and act like a knucklehead and take off my pants in center field and chase butterflies? (laughs) No. That doesn't produce, like, a desire to be a knucklehead in that kid. What does that security produce in that kid? That true security, that kid digs in and he says, you know what? I don't care if I swing and miss because my daddy loves me. 
right? So when security, when God's preserving grace is rightly understood, it does the opposite of encourage sin. It fuels ferociousness in the face of sin. You see that? Oh, friends, that's important. That's important. We could talk about that more biblically, but let's move on. A good question might be, why does God allow? Can you guys give me another 10 minutes? Can you do that? All right, good. I'm hanging there with me. I know some of you may need to go. Why does God allow us to go through such struggles in our sanctification? I think that's a wonderful question. One, to deepen our joy in God. Romans 8, take some time to read that. To wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. That's Paul's argument in Romans, uh, Philippians 3 and 4. And you know that beautiful verse that we put on coffee cups and verses where it says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? That's true, but read the verse before that. He says, I know how to be full, and I know how to be empty. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know how to have a lot, and I know how to have nothing. I know how to have nothing. So because of that, now I can do all things. It weans us from earth and woos us to heaven. And then... Why does God allow us to go through such struggles even though we're eternally secure in his preserving grace is to display the surpassing beauty and worth of Christ to an onlooking world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, verses 5, let me read verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So here's the present experience of Christians. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body of the death, carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that, so we're going through this struggle. Our lives in one sense are withering away under the struggle. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What's Paul saying? Let me summarize his argument. Is that as we wrestle with this world, and as we say no to this world, and as we fight against our sin, and we say no to the comforts of this life, and we reject the false teaching of life being at its best here and now, and we long to heaven and to become more like Jesus, we show that Jesus is better than these 80 and 90 years. And that becomes a powerful witness to an onlooking world. That's a powerful witness. Friends, that's why the false gospel of the prosperity that you see on TBN is just rubbish. Because it teaches people to look away from heaven to here and now. When the Bible says, look to heaven and by so truly then endure the here and now. Much more we could say about that, but let's keep going. Okay, so what about now the warning passages in Hebrews? And we'll go through these quickly. Because we read lots of scripture that commend the clear, preserving, preservation of God. Making sure that people continue in him, even if they have very severe moments of, of, of uh, backsliding. Why do people think that Christians can lose their salvation? Well, primarily because of two passages in Hebrews. Hebrews 6, verses 4 uh, through 10. Let me read that. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, 
and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So, it seems like maybe this verse is saying that Christians can lose their salvation because he's saying that it's impossible in the case of those who've been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and have then fallen away to be restored to repentance. So what's going on there? Does that mean that a person can fall away? Well, question number one there that we have to wrestle with is, is this passage speaking of a Christian, a true born-again Christian, or someone who never truly was a Christian? And I think that the clear um, context of the verse is that it's speaking about somebody who seemed like maybe they were a Christian, maybe it was like soil two or three in the parable of the sower, but never truly was a Christian. The meaning of the first bullet point there, the meaning of the words enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, and shared in the Holy Spirit do not necessarily describe a Christian, but refer, I think in this case, to someone who has participated in the life of the church, been blessed by involvement in the covenant community, but has never come to true repentance that bears fruit. Remember the people that are not truly born again can remember that people who are not truly born again can give external signs of conversion. So I think you know, we just talked about this. There are people that seem to be on the edges. They, they are there for a time, but they ultimately fall away. And they never truly were Christians. And then a second, I think, very, very um, important thing to think about is that when the Bible describes Christians, it uses in everywhere else much more decisive language. Words like forgiven, justified, cleansed, reconciled, redeemed, God's children. And so I think what's happening here is that this passage is describing somebody who is maybe deceiving themselves or who is still in their idolatry, just wanting the benefits of being a Christian. Maybe the businessman who joins up for the prayer breakfast so that he can advance in his company. I mean, come on, friends. This is, this is cultural Christianity, I think, is what this verse is describing. And ultimately, he's drawing a contrast between two types of soil. Again, notice the agricultural analogy, which is very similar to the language in the parable of the sower in Mark 4 that we read. Ultimately, there are two types of soil being contrasted. Verse 7 is, a, he's, is the soil that uh, the rain falls on and produces a crop, produces fruit. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated. It receives a blessing from God. That's a Christian. But verse 8 is the type of soil that's on the edge there but ultimately falls away and proves itself to never truly be a Christian. And he gives a description there. But the, the other type of soil, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed and its end is to be burned. And then the writer redirects. He's saying, but listen, I'm describing people who are not Christians. Then he gets back to his audience. He's saying, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that accompany salvation. So um, I think that it's clear that uh, the Bible's not speaking about 
a Christian there. And regarding the word repentance, um, the Bible, uh, it, it speaks about, uh, in verse 6, they've fallen away to restore them again to repentance. The Bible's clear that um, there are really two types of repentance. There's a worldly repentance that is just sort of a, a man-centered sorrow, and then there's a godly repentance that ends, ends in, in life. Even Judas was sorry. In Matthew 27, verse 3, it says that Judas was sorry for what he did, but it was a, a really a man-centered sort of sorrow. And then in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26 through 31, let me just read that very quickly and we'll wrap this up. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay again and again. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, people have been tripped up uh, for years by that word sanctified in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 there that I just read. It seems like, well, speaking about people that have been sanctified, but the word sanctified um, has a broader range than meaning necessarily people that have um, truly become Christians and received salvation. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, uh, Paul is saying that uh, a believing spouse can interact with their unbelieving spouse because the unbelieving spouse has been made holy or sanctified, same word, by their relationship to this saved spouse. So Paul is not saying that uh, a person becomes a Christian just because they're married to a, 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 Christ, a non-Christian becomes a Christian just because they're married to a Christian. He's saying that they are receiving the blessings and they're, really are, they're okay to be interacted with because of really the, the covenantal blessings that God gives uh, the church. And so uh, I don't think in Hebrews 10, we could spend a lot more time um, outlaying that argument, but I don't think Hebrews 10, uh, 26 to 31, is saying that these people are truly Christians. Admittedly, these two passages in Hebrews 6 and 10 are difficult, but here's, a, here's a, just a sort of hermeneutical principle. Uh, uh, here's an interpretive principle when you're looking at the Bible. The Bible is its own interpreter, right? So when you come to passages like Hebrews 6 and 10 that seem to maybe be saying one thing, you have to weigh them in light of everything else the Bible says about salvation and the certainty of salvation. So if, if all of what we've read in Romans and John 6 and John 10 and 1 Peter and everywhere else is true, then it can't be contradicting what's the writer of Hebrews is saying in 6 and 10. So if A is true, the eternal security of God's people, then Hebrews 6 and 10 can't be saying what they might be saying, some people might think they're saying, because it would contradict everything else that we've read and we could read a, a hundred more scriptures. And so then that gives us a clue that there's something else going on in Hebrews 6 and 10 that is going to that is going to mesh with the rest of the Bible. The Bible is its own interpreter. I end with this. Some thoughts about assurance of salvation. Most, be encouraged by this, friends, most, if not all Christians, experience doubts about the genuineness of their salvation at various points in their life. 
John the Baptist, Johnny B, <laughs> right? Who Jesus said was the greatest person to be born of a woman. After he spends his couple years preaching Jesus, preaching the remission of sins, being the forerunner of his cousin Jesus, gets thrown in prison for preaching against Herod's sin, is about to get his head lopped off and send some of his disciples to Jesus just to say, can you just clarify for this? Are you really the one or should we be seeking another? He's in prison for being the forerunner of Jesus and Johnny B has doubts. I think we're in pretty good company if we occasionally wonder, right? Johnny B, who Jesus says there's not a greater cat in the world. I mean, come on, be encouraged. Thomas Brooks, Puritan preacher, said, our knowledge of God, of Christ, of ourselves, and of the blessed scripture is imperfect in this life. How then can our assurance be perfect? We are weak and wounded, bruised reeds. Understand the basis of, of your assurance um, is, is a great way to, to think about uh, encouraging your assurance. Our assurance rests on the character of God. And this is what I'm getting to you, Brenda, on your question. It doesn't depend on, on our, our character. It depends on God's character. Assurance rests on Christ's finished work, not on ours. Assurance rests on the truth of God's promise. Three questions to ask yourself if you're wrestling with assurance. Do I have a present trust in Christ for salvation? Is there evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in my life? Have I changed over the course of time? Am I wanting, even if I'm, even if I'm getting beat up over it, am I desiring to take God's side against my sin? Is my sin producing disgust in me? Am I wrestling with it? Do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my life? And then finally, what to do if you're still not sure. And this is adapted from Don Whitney's um, a chapter in his book, How Can I Be Sure If I'm a Christian? Six helpful steps. Don't take for granted that you understand the gospel. I think that's the problem with a lot of people is that they don't understand the gospel. They've been sold a bill of self-centered goods, and then when it doesn't actually measure up with their experience, then they start to doubt whether or not what they believed is true. And what they're believing probably isn't true because it's probably not the gospel. So don't take for granted that you understand the gospel. Think deeply about the gospel. And if you don't think you know the gospel, speak to a Christian, a pastor, a wise Christian that you know understands it well, and get clarity on it. Repent of all known sin. Read and meditate on 1 John. In fact, that's the reason why 1 John was wrote. The beginning, written, 1 John, he says, Children, I write these things so that you can be sure of who you believe, what you're believing in. Read, uh, read and meditate on 1 John. Give yourself to Christian community and seek the counsel of your pastors and older, wiser, mature Christians. Friends, all of us at various points in our lives um, wrestle with doubt and assurance of salvation. But, as we said at the beginning, praise be to God that whom God has justified, he will surely glorify. Be confident in that. Any, any well, let me wrap it up. It's, it's time to go, and I'll stick around. I know there's lots of questions. Lord, uh, again, we pray that you, you would use these words. I know there's so many more things that we could say, so many things left unsaid. Thank you for these great questions. Thank you for this great truth. I pray, God, that you would use it to encourage us. Lord, if there's anyone in this room unsure or wrestling 
with their uh, salvation. I pray, God, that they would seek out wise counsel and maybe today they would, they would be clear and, sh- and that you'd give them great confidence that you who have begun a good work in them will, will carry it through to completion. That you are like that good dad saying to them, you are my son and daughter and I will never leave you or forsake you. And Lord, let that truth rise up in the heart of my friend that may be wrestling with doubt in this room and let it cause them to dig their cleats into the batter box of life and swing and swing against the sin and the evil that rages against him. For the glory of your name, for the good of your people, Lord, I pray that you do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.